I want to read our scripture for today in just a moment, but I want to just acknowledge uh, again what a blessing it was if you were able to be with us. Yesterday we had a barbecue celebrating 50 years of grace. I want to again acknowledge the Hart family. Smoking Hearts is their, their uh, competition barbecue name. They just blessed us with great food, and we also followed that. If you're not able to be with us with uh, a wonderful, just an incredible I want to say concert, but it was a worship service acknowledging five decades of worship, the diversity of worship here at Grace. And just thank you again for all of you who are involved, uh, who put the time in. It was just a great evening last night that is going to carry over into today. And the other acknowledgement I want to make before I read scripture is as we've been doing these services, we've been inviting people from the history of Grace to come, particularly pastors. Uh, and this is the first time that we've been fortunate, blessed to have one of our senior pastors of Grace to be able to come and speak with us. Not only our senior pastor of our past, but our bishop of the, the, the present and the immediate future. Um, I want to just again acknowledge, you see the, the biography of John. Many of you know John quite well from his time here. But it is, it is a blessing, given your schedule, given the other commitments you have, even your family, for you to be with us. So I just want to acknowledge before we hit, read scripture, John Brodowski, our bishop and our, our pastor of the past who is here with us today. Can we thank him? And if you weren't with us yesterday, you didn't get to see that our bishop plays the accordion. So, just saying. That was impressive. It was impressive. Beloved, let us hear the word of God together. Our reading has been from Ephesians chapter 4 for each of these 50th anniversary services. Uh, For those of you who don't know, the very first sermon preached at Grace was based on this chapter, on this text, and that is why we've come back to it. Uh, And we've asked each of our speakers to engage it in, in terms of the text itself, but also their time of ministry here at Grace, but also to give us a word looking to our future. I invite you to turn to the Pew Bible that you have that's page 815 in that Bible. If you brought another Bible, we're going to be reading from Ephesians chapter 4, and I will be reading verses 1 through 16. Let us hear the word of the Lord. From Ephesians chapter 4, Paul writes, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. That is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him 
who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And at this time, I invite our bishop to come and to speak to us. First of all, it's both an honor and a privilege to be with you as uh, you celebrate 50 years of faithful ministry in the name and for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. I want you to know that uh, I was blessed uh, to be a part of this history. I was blessed to be your pastor. And I want you to know that the Lord blessed our time together in wonderful ways. And I can tell you that after your invitation, it gave me an opportunity to reflect on our time together, uh, to remember uh, and to treasure those memories. So I want to uh, begin by just speaking a few words about that time together and to remind you that I was surrounded by a great group of leaders, especially Pastor Paul and Pastor Mel. At one point in our time together, we had five pastors on staff. Someone said that was amazing, and I said, no, I just needed a lot of help. <laughs> the group of lay leaders, however, here at Grace were every bit as dynamic uh, as our clergy, and that you were really my teacher, because in your midst, I learned and grew tremendously, both in my faith and my life of following Christ our Lord. Thinking back on those memories, uh, as I said, was a gift. And one of the things I said over in Hope Hall was that as I prayed about my ministry here, I saw it as one to just build on the foundation that was already there. Every other pastor had built layer after layer on top of the foundation of Christ. And mine was simply to add that next layer in our life together, in our history. We focused on Bible study and prayer and worship. We became a teaching congregation for discipleship. This is where I wrote my first articles about discipleship and developed a model for discipleship. We were the first Lutheran congregation to start Alpha on the West Coast. The Curcio community started and grew. We added... Um, to our preschool and elementary school, another campus, and then a middle school as well. We were involved in shaping the lives of young people throughout our community, in our youth ministry, our confirmation ministry, uh, in the work of the Lutheran Bible uh, Institute of California. We were forced in those years to grapple with many difficult issues, but we always managed to turn to the Word of God. We always use the word of God and confess it as we believe it to be the norm for all matters of life and faith. Perhaps we shine the greatest, as I said over there in Hope Hall this morning, uh, in the midst of how we cared for the Hunthausen family as they dealt with Drew's illness and his recovery, and for Pastor Paul and his family as they dealt with Tim's uh, difficult tragic uh, operation and uh, recovery as well. And as I reflect on my time with you, I am profoundly aware that our Lord, through the work of his Holy Spirit, did all these things through you, through the people of grace. 
And that same Holy Spirit is at work today, here, in your midst. And what I came to also make sure that I said to you is that your future will be shaped in the same way by the work of the Holy Spirit through you. You can look back and talk about other pastors and I am thankful for all the ways in which you've remembered my ministry in your midst. But it's the Holy Spirit and you that made the difference. And your future will be shaped in the same way. I want you to know that I believe with all my heart that the best days of grace are not those days behind you but the ones before you. And how can I be sure of that? Because Christ is out in front of us. He is out in front of us, leading us and guiding us. He is out in front of you, leading and guiding you as well. And you are following him. And his word gives us clear direction about this. And we're going to turn to that in a minute. And those of you who thought I was going to talk about something different than discipleship will be sorely disappointed. <laughs> because as I pointed out in Hope Hall, when that executive council came to me and said, uh, you know, is this going to last? Or how long will this discipleship thing last? And uh, uh, I asked why they asked the question. They said, well, all these programs for the church just have about a shelf life of five years. They come and they go, and the next thing replaces it. How long is this discipleship going to last? And I look at them, and I said, I want you to know one thing. For me, this is all there is. And they said, okay, we'll do it then. And I've been doing it ever since, and so have you. So let us turn to uh, that book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the fourth chapter. Uh, you know that I always encourage people to keep their pew Bibles open. That way, if I kept, get boring, you can just lower your eyes and focus on God's Word. Uh, and I know that He won't bore you. So keep your pew Bibles open to that. Before we begin, let us pray. Gracious Lord, we give you thanks for the truth and wonder of your Word. Lord, we celebrate the past in all that has been because we see your profound presence in that past. We see the work and the power of your Holy Spirit. And that, Lord, is what gives us hope for the future. In the midst of so much uncertainty, so much turmoil in the world and in our lives, so much suffering and pain and persecution, we know, Lord, that you are our hope. Looking back gives us pause to find the encouragement we need through you to face that future with even greater boldness, trusting in your grace. In the name of Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Well, Paul begins these words in Ephesians chapter 4 with walk worthy of the calling. The Greek word there, peripateo, is the Greek word for live worthy. Walk through this life worthy of Christ's calling. You see, Paul in the fourth chapter is not giving us more doctrine. He's not giving us more theological concepts to digest, but he is giving us instructions about how we are to live as Christ's followers. 
And this all begins at baptism for us, when we are called and claimed by Christ to be his children. It's the invitation that Jesus offered his first followers, come and follow me. It's the commitment of every parent in baptism to disciple their children, to become followers of Christ. And the task of our ministry is to make sure that parents are equipped to be able to share the faith with their children, to fully disciple them in that life in Christ. And what is a worthy life except a life that is truly worth living? And that is life in Christ. The disciples of Jesus are the ones who are called out from the world and all of its sinful lifestyle and ideologies. The Greek word for church is ekklesia, which literally means the called out ones. You are the body of Christ, the church. You are the ones who have been called out of this world into life in Christ. Those who are numbered within the body of Christ, those called out from the world into the kingdom of God. They are the ones called out for service for the sake of Christ. And there are a host of ways to serve Jesus. Every one of you are involved in different ways of serving Christ, wherever you are. Your vocation, fulfilled in faith, helps to build up and strengthen the whole body of Christ. And Paul reminds us that Jesus holds the body together. Our unity in Christ is not something we can create. It is a gift. It is a gift to his people. It is the gift we receive from him. We are brought together in Christ. In him we find our unity. And that unity, Paul expresses, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all in Christ Jesus. You know, during my time with you, Dallas Willard became a treasured friend. For those of you who don't know, he, he wrote numerous volumes about discipleship. And he was the, um, an ethics professor at USC, head of the chairman of the department at USC, uh, even when he was here with us. He spoke at one of our discipleship conferences, and he identified the problem in the church today. And I've never forgotten his words. He said, we all know the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the close of this age. And he said, we know the great commandment. You're to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. But he said, what most people are unaware of is the great disparity. And he goes on to say that the great disparity is the difference in the kind of life Christ has called us to live and the kind of life we're living. That's the great disparity. And he said it's this great disparity that causes many people to turn away from considering Christian faith in the first place. And following Christ is the way to overcome this great disparity. Paul tells us it all starts with leadership. 
And what I want to say about that is something I've said over these decades uh, here in your midst and other places. Everyone who is a follower of Christ is called to be a leader. You're called to be a leader in your home. You're called to be a leader in the places where you work. You're called to be a leader in your community. We are called to lead others to Christ. That takes leadership. And we have to know where we're going in order to make that happen. Everyone who is following Christ is being trained to lead others, first and foremost, to him. And we are to be built up, to build up one another in Christ. How do we do that? Well, Paul gives us some answers in Ephesians uh, by our faith knowing what our faith is, by, becoming, by having knowledge about who Jesus is, by becoming mature followers of Christ, people who are mature in their faith. No longer, Paul says, are we to be infants tossed about by the waves. You know, if you're in a boat and you're being tossed about by the waves, it's hard to stay on course, isn't it? And that's what Paul is talking about. You've got to learn to stay on course. Mature people have a way of gaining control of that so that you can keep on that course. Not being blown around by the winds of cunning and deceit and craftiness that are so overwhelming out there in the world that are trying to influence our lives. So these many winds of deceit and craftiness, the scheming of evil. We have to learn how to stay on course and not just be blown about by these things. We are to be, as Paul says, wise and discerning. One of the attributes of leadership that is essential for building up others in Christ is to be people of conviction. Sometimes we get immersed in everything that's happening around us and to us that we forget how to move forward in, as leaders in Christ. First of all, we have to have this sense of conviction. To be convinced and convicted about who Jesus is, is first and foremost. We have to be so convinced and convicted about our faith that nothing in our lives is of greater importance. And you know, brothers and sisters, this is really all that Jesus offered his disciples. He didn't offer them a program. He didn't offer them a great uh, tome of theology. He didn't offer them lots of other things that we spend lots of time and energy on in the church. He offered them himself. He offered his disciples himself because Jesus is the incarnate kingdom of heaven. He is the savior of the world. There is salvation in no one else. It is his cross that is the source of our redemption and our forgiveness. There's no other source of life except Christ. There's no other source of truth except Christ. That's the nature of our faith, to have this conviction about Christ. Because you can't and I can't pass on something that we don't believe. We can't offer to anyone else what we have not received in Christ. So we must be people of that conviction. We're not called to just preach or teach ideas or theological concepts, but Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. You see, that conviction is rooted in loving Jesus above all. Loving Jesus above everything else in this world. 
We can't lead others by simply offering them programs or ministries to keep them busy. We lead by offering people what we ourselves have received, Jesus. We are to lead people to Jesus, nurture them through the word and sacrament, love them in a community of faith that is committed to nurturing disciples until they too are equipped to disciple others. We must have that conviction. We must be assured of our faith. Second, we must also have a sense of commitment. See, Paul writes to Timothy in chapter 6, verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith and take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And then he says, I encourage you to focus on that word pursue because that's the word really about commitment, to pursue. Philippians uh, chapter 3, he writes, I keep pressing on, forgetting what is behind. I press on towards the goal. Grace must do the same. Press on towards the goal. That's the commitment of an athlete. And Paul uses this imagery. I used to take it on the chin because I used to always use uh, sports illustrations. And uh, uh, some folks said, can't you use any other illustrations besides sports illustrations? But I take consolation in the fact that Paul talks about boxing and running. And, and truth, it's... Um, this commitment is like that of an athlete that turns this sense of uh, commitment into action. That's what our commitments are. How do I live out this conviction that I have other than by my commitments in this life? You know, that's what an athlete does as they're in training. This is like training for a marathon. Uh, I'm getting ready to run the Philadelphia Marathon in November. It'll be my eighth marathon. And, and Jacob, my son, is going to run it as well. So we'll be in the marathon together. That means we'll go together to pick up our registration packages, and I will never see him again. <laughs> That's the closest we're going to get. He'll be at one end of the race, and I'll be at the other end of, of, of the race. But if you're going to run in a marathon, you have to take this overall uh, conviction and turn it into a series of commitments to make it work. There are many athletes who have great, a great sense of commitment to their discipline. And sometimes looking at how much those athletes invest in their sport and in their discipline. What if Christians live their lives the same way? The same way. Because I, you could be on a podium at the Olympics getting a gold medal and think that's the ultimate in your life until... You die. And suddenly, no matter what else we've accomplished in our life, death is this great equalizer because we are led to understand there's something far more important about life than a gold medal or any other accomplishment. It is the direction Christ calls us to lift up our head heavenward, to focus on his kingdom. You see, every good athlete has to have a coach. I got a training program from a person that's run far more marathons, a coach that has helped others uh, get through marathons and survive. Uh, 
And the truth is, that's very important. You've got to have a good coach. And as followers of Christ, Christ is our coach. And we depend on one another to hear the voice of Christ in our lives. We have to live in a sense of mutual commitment to one another for that training. And in addition to that, the Word of God through Scripture is also our coach. And the Holy Spirit is also our coach, helping us to live our lives with these commitments to follow Christ. In Ephesians 4.1, you heard that live a life worthy of the calling you've received. The point is this. Commitment is to live out the faith that we're called to proclaim. Disciples of Jesus are leaders. They're people of conviction and people who express their conviction in their commitments day by day. And that third element that I want to point out to you as you move forward as leaders in the church of Christ, developing and encouraging one another and speaking a word that will equip others to follow Christ in the same way, that third element of faithful leadership is to exercise and practice the faith yourself. This is part of, of this important discipline to spend time with Jesus daily, to let him speak through the reading of his word, through meditating on his word and what it has to say, through prayer and fasting, all our ways for us to listen to him, opportunities for us to confess our sins, to give thanks and to praise him, to lift up the concerns in our own life and the lives of our family and friends and others for whom we intercess. This is how we exercise and practice the faith. In Philippians chapter 3.10, Paul writes, And I want to know Jesus, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participate in his suffering. That's the exclusive attachment of discipleship. Knowing Jesus, following Jesus. Through the discipline of reading and studying his word for the purpose of knowing Jesus and just being brought closer to Jesus. Just as an athlete can't just run a marathon if they don't first walk and then jog and then add distance day by day to their mileage, we cannot lead others if we don't engage in the same kind of disciplines. You see, leaders of others are not just called to talk about marathons or the techniques in running marathons. They're not just called to talk about the benefits of being physically fit or the advantage of having a good coach. We are called to pursue practice daily in these disciplines. This is devotion to Jesus, because here's the truth. You and I are also in the race. We're not observers. We're not on the sidelines. We're not just encouraging others to run in our stead. We are in the race. We're participants. Jesus gave no room as he trained his disciples for those to stand on the sidelines and watch. This connection with Christ calls us to follow him. He's out in front of us leading the way. You know, uh, this is uh, very true. Um, our guest organist uh, last night reminded me that uh, Jessica was one of his piano students um, and, uh, you know, uh, Jacob and Jordan followed uh, in that same uh, practice, and uh, th that was the hardest part about learning piano, isn't it? How many here have been piano students at one time or another? 
what did someone always have to force you to do? That's right. Uh, and, and why did someone have to force you to practice? Because uh, I know at our home, uh, it, there was not much practice until we got close uh, to uh, where they were going to have to perform in front of others. And then suddenly, so as not to be embarrassed, they wanted to practice a little. Uh, but it's the daily routine that cements it into our hearts and minds. It's the daily disciplines that are so very important in our lives. We need to practice, which means Christ is calling us to invest ourselves in his mission, in his ministry. Someone else can't do that for us. A pastor can't accomplish that for you. Each of us must take responsibility for fulfilling that role, for practicing the faith, for living out these commitments, for having the conviction that leaders must have to influence others. Paul also writes to Titus these words in chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. This is the greatest discipline of all, isn't it? To begin to say no to the world so that we can say yes to Jesus. Any, anyone who thinks you can skate by in this life saying yes to the world and yes to Jesus is at the same time is deceiving themselves according to Paul's instructions. We've got to make those choices. That's part of the discipline. How do we make those choices? And let me tell you what is even more important is that we are called in this community of faith to hold one another accountable for making those decisions, to be transparent in our relationships and intimate enough to be able to talk about this with one another. And that starts right at home. Parents have got to be able to talk about this with each other. We've got to be able to talk about it with our, our children. And I don't know if you've noticed, but I didn't think, uh, they always laughed about uh, children returning home uh, after they've been away, and that's just part of a California phenomenon, but I got news for you, it happens everywhere, <laughs> not just in California. Uh, but, but the truth is, whenever you have opportunity, and your children are never done being your children, are they? I don't care how old they are, they're still never done being your children. You know what, that's a wonderful thing, because that means you're never done influencing them. For the sake of Christ, in the direction of Christ. You know, some parents uh, say, well, you know, they're, uh, they're too old for me to, to, to uh, influence them. They're never too old. You're called to be an influence in their lives. They're never too old. If you're equipped and ready and able, you can still have that powerful influence in their, in their lives and in the lives of others, friends, extended family, neighbors. That's Christ's calling. Living, walking as a disciple of Jesus is our witness in the world. It's not just what we say, but it's how we live. And that's most important of all. You see, in living with conviction and commitment and that discipline, we grow up in Christ. If you want to know how we mature, as Paul talks about it, that's how we mature and so it's for those reasons that we are no longer blown about by the winds, winds or tossed by the waves. And most importantly, we learn to speak the truth in love. That's a very powerful verse in the middle of this chapter. 
as we hear Jesus speaking the truth in his love for us, so we too become equipped to do the same in our actions with others. This whole sense of political correctness that has overwhelmed us will lead nothing to nothing but the denigration of our culture. And when Christians employ it, it leads to the denigration of our own faith. This is critical for our life together. Rarely do we find these words truth and love coupled together in our experience. There are many people who are faithful to speak the truth, but often they do so in a way that harms others and prevents them from being able to share their faith. Someone first used this illustration. They are like candles attracting moths. The light is there, but often the light only serves to destroy. They get too close to the light and they burn up. The truth is often shared but used as a way to denounce and ridicule or control others. You see, but the truth of God can only be shared within an environment of love. You see, those who would share the truth without love only succeed in destroying the message itself. Because the gospel is a word about that love. God's love for us in Christ Jesus. On the other hand, there are those who would emphasize love at the expense of truth. Because truth can be harsh. It can tell us things we would rather not hear. I hope and pray you have people in your life that speak the word of truth that it always does not make you feel just comfortable, but rather motivates you to reveal things that you and I would rather not hear or see or know about. But love without truth is nothing but empty sentiments. It has no base. It has no strength. And truth without love is just a tyrant. But love without truth is a lie. Love without truth is a lie. See, what I've discovered in the course of my ministry is that many people are interested in discipleship because they believe that everybody else around them really needs to be transformed by Christ. But not me. But not me. That's good for others. We love that everyone else will need to change, except me. That'll make my world a far better place. But let me call your, your attention to the kind of transformation that Paul points out that will come in our lives, not someone else's life, but in our life as we live in Christ. Paul says, don't live in the futility of your own thinking because that produces darkness and separates us from God. It's where there is ignorance and hardness of the heart. There is also a sensitivity to the spiritual realm that causes people to indulge. With, without that sensitivity to the spiritual realm, it causes them to indulge in sensuality and and greed, fear, and death instead of assurance of eternal life, a life directed 
towards God's heavenly kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus came to proclaim. Paul says, put off the old self, corrupted by deceitful desires. It's part of living that truth. Be made new in the attitude of your minds. Put on the new self in Christ. Be a new creation in Christ, righteous and holy. Speak the truth. Put off falsehood. Do not sin in your anger. It doesn't say you can't be angry, but it says don't let your anger lead you to sin. Do not steal, Paul says, but use your hand for useful purposes so that you can contribute to the saints, so that you can contribute and invest in the lives of others. Build up others with your words. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Get rid of all angerness, rage, bitterness, slander, and all malice. Be kind and compassionate. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. You see, Jesus challenged his disciples to live lives completely transformed by his reign. Integrated into the wholeness that is possible only through Jesus. This new life and freedom is only through obedience to Jesus and to his commands. And such a transformed life becomes a model for others. Jesus describes that new life in himself. Instead of the highest honor, Jesus says, pursue the things that are in last place. Pursue being the least valued of all. Pursue being the lowliest of all. Pursue being the smallest of all. Pursue placing yourselves behind others. You see, and my contention is dealing with death as we are able to in Christ, death and resurrection. Dealing with death frees us for this kind of life. And the implication for discipleship is obvious. The one who follows Jesus in the way of the cross must live this life of sacrifice and service. Now, we were just with a group from another church body. We were talking about the Holy Scriptures and we were agreeing on together on what the Holy Scriptures are, how important they are, how central they are uh, to our lives. Um, and, and at one point, I, so they were trying to make this great defense, and I said, you know, really, the Holy Scriptures don't need anyone to defend them. God is not depending on us to defend Holy Scripture. Uh, and I've used this illustration before. It's kind of like those who want to overturn the scriptures and those who uh, uh, want to preserve them are like two people at the opposite ends of the Rock of Gibraltar, each with a toothpick in his mouth, pushing, trying to overcome the other. Are they ever going to succeed? No. You know why? Because that rock is movable. Here's your choice. Either live on that rock or try to find life elsewhere. That's it. And you know, uh, this uh, wonderful illustration is what Jesus was talking about when he talked about building your life on the rock, on the foundation, so that when the floods come, when the rains begin to pour, your house will remain immovable. On the other hand, those who build on the sand, when the rains come, it's washed away. It's gone. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, to be conformed to the image of Christ is not an ideal to be striven after. It's not as though we had to imitate him as well as we could. We can't transform ourselves into his image. Rather, it's the image and form of Christ which seeks to be formed in us. Oh, that's wonderful. 
good news. Christ is longing to form himself in you. That's the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And to be manifested in us, he writes, Christ's work in us, in us is not finished until he has perfected his own form in us. We must be assimilated to that form of Christ in its entirety, the form of Christ incarnate, crucified, and glorified. And life in Christ starts with death. It's precisely what we proclaim in baptism. We are buried with Christ in baptism. And any gospel that doesn't deal with the reality of death is no gospel at all. And only as it deals with death and the cross can we proclaim the power of the resurrection and a life that is eternal. This is the life to which you've been called. It can never be reduced to a series of involvements or functions or duties, but it is a life of hungering and thirsting Longing for Jesus, loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then following him obediently. These words are challenging. Challenging, they're overwhelmed. But we have this wonderful sense of peace and assurance. We can never do any of this alone. It is only through Christ and with Christ, in the power of his Holy Spirit, that we can do this. And that's the reason Jesus says at the end of the Great Commission, one of the greatest promises of all. What does he say? Lo, I am with you always, even to the close of this age. Grace, he is with you. The age is not over yet. It may be coming to an end soon, but it's not over yet. He is with you. He is leading you. He is guiding you. And you are following him. I want to encourage you to, to continue to be those leaders in the body of Christ. Grace has been a community of faith nurturing those leaders for 50 years of faithful ministry. And I'm absolutely convinced that through your continued ministry, Jesus will also be relentless in pursuing those leaders in your midst, calling them, inviting them to hear his call to follow me and giving them every chance to respond. Their faith will be nurtured in the lives of those who have already been transformed as disciples of Jesus. Make discipleship your singular focus in your life together as that community of faith. As you have, so continue fulfilling Christ's mission through your ministry. In the name of Christ, amen.